0: (laughs) okay make sure I'm loud because I'm not as loud as Brent (laughs) so we're in Acts chapter 2 and uh, I'm sure Brent didn't realize this but I'm going to begin us in a word of prayer and ask for uh, God's blessings I always like to begin with prayer uh, as I begin the message so let's pray father thank you God that we can call upon your holy name Lord, help us to know who you are, to understand by the enablement of your spirit, God, that we might know you and know the power of the resurrection. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, God, that we might receive, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts, that we would be conformed to your image, God, that we would be a church that glorifies your name. And so, we submit this time to you, and we, in unity, open our hearts to you and to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, over the last couple of weeks, we were reminded from Acts chapter 2 that the Spirit of God came down to indwell every believer on the day of Pentecost. That was prophesied in many Old Testament passages. And when the Spirit came upon these believers, they spoke in many languages, proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And those visiting Jerusalem for that Pentecost were in amazement at what God was doing. They didn't really understand. And some, in response to what was happening, accused them of being drunk with wine. And that's when Peter stood up and began to speak. He said, this is what was spoken through Joel the prophet. And then Peter explained that Joel had prophesied the coming of the Holy Spirit in the last days. Not on just kings and priests and prophets like in the Old Testament. But in Joel's prophecy, it says on sons and daughters, on men servants and maidservants on all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And this is the beginning of the promised new covenant. Understand, the church is not a group of two or three that just choose to meet together. A lot of people quote from Matthew 18, For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. But that's not a passage defining the church. It's actually talking about church discipline. When two or three confront in unity, confront lovingly to restore a brother, God says, I'm there in the midst. Actually, a church is a group of believers called out of the world, baptized and led by a qualified elder or elders who meet together, and we've already read it, to learn and apply the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship together, to break bread together And to pray in unity. That's what we read. That's what we looked at last week in verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Notice they were continually devoting themselves to these four spiritual duties of a biblical church. That's what a church is supposed to do. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, there are several metaphors that help us better understand what the church is in the world. The church is Christ's body, as we've talked about many times, functioning in unity to obey and carry out the commands of the head. Excuse me. The church is Christ's bride, to whom the Father has called out of the world for his son, a bride for his son. The church is the temple of God, and we are living stones who uh, corporately are where God dwells. God dwells amongst us. The church is the household of God. He is our Heavenly Father, and we are His children. The church is the kingdom of God. He is our Lord. He's our King, and we are His subjects. It actually uses the term in the scriptures that we are doulos, we are Slave, Not servants. We are slaves of the king. We are willing slaves. And we have the best slave master that has ever been known. God, the one that loved us and gave himself for us. So we, as we as Cornerstone began sort of a new start here in Forestbrook. May we continually devote ourselves to being a biblical church. May we devote ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. May we take the gospel to a lost and dying world. May we proclaim it from our housetops. May we go out into this community and take the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we commit ourselves to the Lord and His plan for the local church, I really believe Whether we see blessings like this world suggest that we should have, God will bless us spiritually. If we are just faithful, God will be glorified, and that's what matters. Let's continue this morning in Acts chapter 2. Let me see if I can. I need to get this a little bit lower, but it's hard. Yeah. Oh, this. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's a stubborn stand. So we've come to verse 43. We've seen the four duties of a biblical church. Now we will see the four spiritual attitudes of a biblical church. Listen to verse 2, verse 43 through 47a. Everyone who kept filling a sense of awe, And many wonders and signs... Let me read that again. Everyone kept filling a sense of all. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. Notice first, a sense of all. Everyone kept filling a sense of all. This word all means fear or holy terror. It's the idea of reverence. And it's reverence that comes from an awareness of God's presence. Some of these believers had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now they had experienced the coming, the prophesied coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were observing men and women coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So truly, they kept filling a sense of all. They were in a real sense in the presence of God. They recognized His presence. As they saw God's work amongst amongst them, they had that sense of awe, that fear, that reverence that comes from awareness of God's presence. Last summer, I was introduced to a phrase that I had never come across before, "Corum Deo. It's a Latin phrase that means in his presence. Dr. R.C. Sproul writes this about this Phrase, this Latin phrase. This phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of God or before the face of God. To live coram deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. This is how we should live as believers with an awareness of God's presence. And when we recognize his presence, we will have a sense of awe. But we first have to know who God is. Dr. Sproul was once asked, what is man's greatest need? And he said this, to know who God is. And the same person followed up with this question, what is the church's greatest need? He answered the same, to know who God is folks when we know who God is when we come to grips with the God of heaven and earth the one that sent his son to die for us that we might be born again we will have a sense of God we will find ourselves in his presence when you truly understand who God is you will find yourself continually filling a sense of all we need to be quorum Deo in his presence. Not only did they have a sense of awe, they experienced the power of God. This was a supernatural church, Acts 2, 43b. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So this early church was a miraculous church. The supernatural in this day was concurrent with Christ and the time of the apostles these supernatural events and gifts of the holy spirit authenticated that jesus was the messiah that the spirit of god had come to indwell believers and that salvation had come to the gentiles also so these gifts were temporary because they had a temporary purpose the writer of hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 writes this, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to those, to us, excuse me, by those who heard. God also testifying with them both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Notice it was confirmed, as tense, to those To us, by those who heard. How is it confirmed? It tells us. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and various miracles and gifts, according to the Holy Spirit, according to his will. Here's the question for us. Should should the church today be a supernatural church? And I believe the answer is yes. Not in the same way that this church was. We don't no longer, I don't believe we have those same gifts and those miracles to authenticate the message. I don't believe we need those anymore. And history bears that out. But the answer is yes. When the gospel is preached and people are born from above, this is supernatural. When believers use their spiritual gifts to glorify God and serve one another, this is supernatural. It's not based on our abilities. It's not based on our efforts. It's based on the Spirit's power as He gives us to carry out His purposes. When people worship the Lord in unity as the body of Christ through song, preaching, prayer, giving, serving, sacrificing for one another. This is supernatural. Congregational worship is not some man-centered event. It shouldn't be. It's not enabled by our abilities or our talents. It must be Christ-centered as it's enabled by the Holy Spirit. So, this is my suggestion. If Cornerstone is not a supernatural church in this sense, we're wasting our time in our efforts we need to be quorum Deo we need to have the presence of God and when we do that and we take seriously what the Word of God says about what a church is to be that God might be glorified it makes all the difference in the world we are glorifying God we are being supernatural because God works through His people. God works in His temple, the church. Not only did they have a sense of awe and the power of God, there's a willingness to share. They were experiencing true communion, koinonia, partnership. Verse 44 through 46a, and all those who had believed were together. There's the unity And had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Notice again, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. They were unified. They had one purpose, one heart. They worshiped God and served one another as the body of Christ. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of Acts said they possess not only a spiritual unity, but also a practical oneness. Understand this passage is not supporting communal living. The family is the basic social unit, not the commune. And Really, to better understand the historical context, again, listen to the words of Dr. MacArthur. He writes this Such sharing and mutual meeting of the needs of pilgrims was a long standing tradition in Israel during the great religious feast. The inns could not accommodate the vast influx of people to Jerusalem during those feast times. As a result, the common people would open their homes and shared their resources with the visitors. Many members of the early church were such pilgrims, Save while visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They now stayed to be a part of the new work of God. It was only basic Christian love for those who lived in the city to share with them. Additionally, some in the fellowship had no doubt lost their livelihoods Due to their profession of faith in Christ, the rest of the fellowship met their needs, and others were just the poor believers who always needed help. In this verse that we looked at a moment ago, selling and sharing is not in the Greek present tense, it's the imperfect, it's a continuous past action. So while this took place for some time or over a period of time, it does not necessarily suggest that what they did, at least in all its detail, is the mainstay of the church. The goal was not that every believer had the same material goods. It was that every believer had their needs met. And every believer wasn't able to serve the Lord. It was based upon a particular immediate need. But understanding that does not negate our responsibility to meet legitimate needs in the body. What we're seeing here is an attitude of sharing demonstrated in a particular time of need. And that's the love. That's the cornonea that we should have for one another. John wrote, We know love by this. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Not only did they have a sense of all, the power of God and a willingness to share, this was a rejoicing church. Acts 2, 46b-47a, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. We should not be surprised that a unified, miraculous, sharing church would be rejoicing in the Lord. The word gladness here literally means to rejoice. Sincerity of heart is the word for simplicity or singleness, like singleness of intent. The root word, interesting, the root word means free of rocks or smoothness. It implies no clutter getting in the way. Or again, singleness of heart. So with rejoicing and singleness of heart, they praise God. Once again, MacArthur writes in his commentary, to praise God is to recite His wonderful works and attributes. We can't do that unless we know Him. We need to know who God is, and we know that through His Word. So the single goal of this first fellowship was to exalt the Lord. It was to praise God, and those who exalt themselves will never find true joy. Joy comes from those or comes to those who glorify God with singleness of heart. So we have seen four spiritual duties and now four spiritual attitudes of a biblical church. Now notice the spiritual impact. Verse 47b. And having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Favor with all the people. These people had favor. They had a testimony because of what God had done in their lives. God granted them favor. The people had observed the transformation of the Jews. They had observed them as they continued to meet in the temple to worship the Lord. And they observed that they sacrificed for one another. They gave up, even sometimes because of the great need, selling their property to meet one another's needs. Certainly, this was a great testimony. In one sense, these believers were the realization of the words of the Lord Jesus. John thirteen thirty-five. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another I think we have to point out here having favor with all the people is not the norm throughout church history nor did it last for these believers persecution soon came and this is what I suggest expect persecution but always seek favor with man Seek to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how you are treated by the world. Not only did these believers have favor with all the people, they experienced numerical growth. We've already seen the spiritual growth. This is numerical growth. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Notice that it's the Lord adding to the number. Was not their efforts. Because God is sovereign in salvation. He predestines, He elects, He chooses all to the praise of His glory. Paul declared in Ephesians 1, 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. After Paul and Barnabas proclaimed that salvation had now come to the Gentiles, Luke tells us this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word appointed means to assign to a certain position or to a lot. As many as had been assigned to eternal life. As many as had been appointed to eternal life. Jesus said in John six forty-four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw, Helkuo, it doesn't mean to woo like we think of to draw. It actually means to drag or draw like you draw a fishing net out, you know, behind a boat, or you draw water up out of the well. The fish don't have a choice in the matter if they're caught in the net. The water doesn't have a choice in the matter if you're pulling it up, if it's in the bucket. Later in that chapter, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Folks, God is sovereign in salvation. I don't understand everything, but I know what the Word of God says and I believe it. But while God is sovereign in salvation, man is responsible to believe the gospel. Believers... Are responsible to obey the gospel and proclaim the gospel and they're responsible to love one another as God has loved us no doubt these believers continue to preach the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ however the Lord used their devotion to these spiritual duties and their love for one another as a testimony to God's power to transform sinners sinners like us see all the glory goes back to God because it's all a work of God we might draw crowds with man-centered flashy church services but God works and that's what we want we never want a church built upon our efforts we want it built upon the work of God we want people to be truly born again born from above, transformed by the power of God. God works as we take a biblical message out into a lost and dying world. He works as we're faithful in the church, the four spiritual duties. He works through transformed lives. God works through the love that we have for one another. The transformation of these Jews came through the power of the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, we see a biblical gospel. Peter preached the crucifixion and resurrection as we looked at two weeks ago. Peter proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Messiah in response to the message of the gospel. Remember what it said? These Jews were cut to the heart. God cut their hearts so to speak and they asked what must we do this was Peter's response repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit folks a biblical gospel includes repentance repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction it is a work of God it's not something that we muster up on our own And remember the analogy that there's two sides of that coin of conversion, repentance and faith, and they go hand in hand. Even though they're two distinct things in a sense, you can't have one without another. You can't have saving faith without biblical repentance. And you can't have biblical repentance without saving faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Preachers today often preach an easy believism. Just believe the facts about the gospel. Just pray and ask Jesus into your heart. Everything will be okay. But that's not what the Word of God teaches, is it? We need to preach a biblical gospel. These Jews heard a biblical gospel that included a call to repent. And their lives were transformed by the power of God. They became new creations in Christ Jesus. These believers were never the same again. They were transformed for eternity because it was a work of God. In closing, I want you to listen to a letter by a man, a 2nd century Christian writer, Athenian philosopher, Aristides, writing to the emperor Titus Augustus Pius. Actually, there's more to his name, but I can't pronounce it. Listen to his words. I found this convicting, but also an example of what a church should be. Now the Christians, O King, by going about and seeking have found the faith. For they know and trust in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds in which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason, they do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle. They do not covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother and do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. They do not wish that what others do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat the food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual conduct and from impurity in the hope of recompense that is to come in another world. As for their bondmen and bondwomen and their children, if there are any, they persuade them to become Christians, And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They refuse to worship strange gods, and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not known among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who has done him violence. He who has gives to him who has not ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him into their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but by those, but, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, Each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their number who are imprisoned or impressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst, they do not and do not have spare food, they Fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrumptiously the commandments of the Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for his goodness to them, and for their food and drink, they offer thanksgiving. If any righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice and thank God and escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to them, they praise God. If it dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for the one who has passed through the world without sins. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins they grieve bitterly and sorrow as over one who is about to meet his doom. Such, O King, is the commandment given to Christians, and such is their conduct. If someone wrote a letter to President Trump about Cornerstone Church, Would that letter sound anything like this? Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that you have transformed us. You've redeemed us by your power. God, all the glory goes to you. We dare not ever take credit for what you've done. Lord, we just want you to be glorified. We want people to know how great you are. For you indeed are a great God. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for conforming us into your image. God, may you continue to do that. Where we lack, where we struggle, God, may you by your power continue to change us that we might have a testimony for your name and be used for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.